Just a word, uh, our projector's not working again, so we'll work from these monitors today, so hopefully you can see well what I'm talking about. Beginning with a show of hands, how many of you already have your uh, 2021 taxes filed? Okay, some of you. I knew there'd be some early birds. All right, and then there's probably a group in the middle. Show of hands, how many of you wait till the very last minute? Okay. That's interesting. It's probably a pretty good spectrum. I try every year to get mine in in a timely way. I don't like to wait till the last minute. Some years it takes a lot of time for the forms to come through. Just about ready to get them sent in before February ends, so that's a pretty good goal for me. Um, but my point is, is, is that this year might not actually matter. And I don't know if, uh, if you're an early or late person, but I've actually been coming across a whole bunch of articles that say this year, even if you get your taxes in early, um, it's not going to matter. Your, your tax refund, if you get one, is going to be terribly delayed. Apparently, they're still processing uh, returns, not just from last year, but even from the year before. So the IRS is kind of backlogged. And uh, so for those of you who like to get them in early and hope for a quick check back from the government, you, you may be disappointed. Now, I like it when our government operates efficiently, um, but I think we have to be a little bit patient. And I didn't realize this until I actually sat down and started going through some of these articles and through some of this information. But every year, the IRS processes over 160 million tax returns. I can't even imagine the amount of time and energy that would take. And then, to make matters even more difficult, on top of the sheer numbers of returns that they have to deal with, and this was a surprising number to me, about every year there's five million or so fraudulent tax returns filed. And you can imagine that besides processing the return, a good deal of time is taken to try and actually get people to pay what they're legally required to pay. Okay, you don't need me to give you any IRS advice or, or, or tax advice. That's not my area of expertise, and I, I certainly struggle with these things because uh, I haven't been given a financial mind. But I did want to point out the fact that people's challenges and struggles with taxes isn't something new, and it isn't just as a result of the pandemic that there's this backlog. There's always been questions about the validity of paying taxes to a government, and it dates all the way back to our lesson today and even previous to that. And I wanted to get the, the tax issue out there because at first glance, as we go through this lesson, it might seem that it's all about taxes. On the surface, that is a big part of it. But the reality is, is once you peel back the layers of this onion, you're going to discover that it's about so much more. This morning, we're going to deal with a situation where Jesus has to answer his enemies. And I'm going to make sure we carefully go through it because one of the things that we're going to witness is not only the hidden glory of our Savior, but the amazing love that he shows. He patiently answers the question in a very truthful way. Jesus wants even his enemies, those who want to kill him, even these people Jesus wants to rescue and save them from their sins. And if he shows them that kind of amazing love, we can only imagine the extent of his wisdom, his glory, and his love, which he shares with us. This is today's lesson. And they send unto him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians to catch him in his words. And when they were come, they say unto him, Master, we know that thou art true and carest for no man. For thou regardest not the person of men, but teachest the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Shall we give or shall we not give? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said unto them, why tempt ye me? Bring me a penny that I may see it. And they brought it. 
And he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? And they said unto him, Caesar's. And Jesus answering said unto them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. The best place to start today's lesson is probably to go back to the end of last week's lesson because they follow each other very closely. And we closed last week with the lesson on Jesus cleansing the temple the second time of his ministry. And Mark records this as one of the final thoughts. That after Jesus had done this tremendous thing, and, and if you will really think about it, a defiant thing against the religious leaders, from that point on they much more invested themselves into trying to figure out a way to kill Jesus. They had this problem, though. Um, they couldn't just simply attack Jesus in a physical way and try to get rid of him because at this point Jesus was still very popular with the people. And every time he seemed to teach or perform one of his miracles, that popularity and that uh, investment of care that the people had towards Jesus was only deepened. And so the, the religious leaders, the enemies of Jesus, knew that the task before them was they needed to actually drive a wedge between Jesus and the people. Otherwise, they could never do anything to get rid of them. Now, just to set the scene, last week's lesson happened on Monday, Monday of Holy Week. And today's lesson takes place on Tuesday of Holy Week. And when you look through the events of the entire week, the last week of Jesus' ministry, other than Friday when Jesus was crucified for us, Tuesday is the single most action-packed day of the week. And I've listed out many of the things that went on that day, beginning with the withered fig tree. And you might recall that from last week, how on Monday Jesus cursed the tree. And so Tuesday on their way back into Jerusalem, that's one of the first events recorded for us. The disciples notice how Jesus' words cursing that fig tree had come true. And then they immediately go into the city of Jerusalem, head to the temple area, and the day begins there. And it was a full day with Jesus' teaching. The one area that we're going to focus in on are the four different episodes where Jesus' authority in ministry is challenged, specifically by the religious leaders. And maybe the best way for us to get our head around today's lesson is to review these four challenges, today's lesson being one of them. The first one, so as soon as they arrive in that Gentile court around the temple, these religious leaders come up to Jesus and immediately question his authority. And they're making a reference back to the previous day's event, where Jesus disrupts the temple marketplace, he throws the merchants out, and he refused to let the simple passers-by use the temple as a shortcut uh, into the city of Jerusalem. They, they come to him and say, now, what gives you the right to do that? And before Jesus answers them directly by saying not only did he have the right, but he really had the obligation to do so, he understands what this is about. And so he poses to them a question. Now Jesus doesn't just pick a question out of thin air. He very specifically asks this question. And he says, by what authority did John do his baptizing? So it's a reference to John the Baptist baptizing those who would come out to him in the desert. And as a point of clarification, it wasn't the sacrament of baptism as we have been given today. It was an outward sign that symbolized their conversion from Judaism into Christianity. And so Jesus says, so why was John doing that? By what authority was John doing that? And they don't immediately answer. They, they go to the side and debate this among themselves. And they recognize that the people saw that John the Baptist was truly a prophet. 
And they knew the right answer was to say that he had done it by God's authority. But they don't want to say that. Because if they answer that way by John the Baptist, then they know Jesus will answer them in the same way that he was doing these things by God's authority. Don't forget that he had already publicly made the claim he was Messiah and that he had been sent by God the Father as the rescuer of the world. And so their non-response then opens the door for Jesus to simply say, well, if you're not going to answer my question, then I don't feel obliged in any way to answer your question. So it's kind of left hanging in the air, but there's still this very thick tension within the temple courtyard. The second of the challenges is actually our lesson today, and we'll look at that in, in great detail in just a few moments. But I want to put it within this context because it's interesting what the third challenge is. There's kind of a switch as to a method of attacking Jesus. Up until this time, and you'll hear that reference, and I'll point it out, the they in our text is a, a reference back to the religious leaders, the majority who were Pharisees, but there was a smaller yet more powerful subgroup known as the Sadducees. They were all members of the Jewish religion, but there were different bents or beliefs amongst them. The Sadducees are the ones who approach Jesus now, and so it would have been in a much more authoritative state than the Pharisees, and they bring up this question regarding what's known as leveret marriage. And it's not a term that's common amongst us, but it was part of the civil life for the nation of Israel. I'm not going to go into all kinds of detail about it, because you can read about it in great detail. All you do is turn to Deuteronomy chapter 25, and it is explained there. But let me quickly summarize it for you. Because the land was given to each family by God once they arrived in the promised land, part of God's purpose for his people was to never let the land uh, depart from their families. And so if you had the elder brother of a family who died without leaving a male heir, there was the possibility that that family land might somehow be lost. And so God had given the nation of Israel this leveret law of marriage, meaning that the next eldest son was required by law to provide a male heir through the deceased brother's wife. Now, I know it gets into a lot of technical issues, but what it boils down to is he would have a son by the dead brother's wife, and it wouldn't legally be his son, it would be his nephew. That boy would become the male heir of the eldest brother. That way God would maintain the uh, land ownership amongst each family. Now, the Sadducees come and pose this uh, uh, difficult question, because they, they go down the line of seven brothers and ask, so whose wife is she when they all die and get to heaven? The problem is it's a very hypocritical question, because the Sadducees did not actually believe in an afterlife. They only uh, would follow the teachings of Moses in the first five books of the Bible, no heaven or no hell, and none of the other Old Testament passages made any sense to them, or they just didn't care about them. So Jesus answers on two levels. First of all, he reminds them that in heaven, the institution of marriage will not exist as it does here on earth. Uh, this uh, marriage between husbands and wives is something that God created for this earthly life. And it's meant to be a blessing and a help for us in this life, but we won't need that once we're in heaven. But then Jesus gives them the real answer they need, and he shows the falseness of their theology. And he points back to the time when God identified himself to Moses at the burning bush by referring to himself as the father, the God and father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, those patriarchs had long been dead by the time Moses was born and by the time that God called him to lead Israel. And then Jesus adds the true thought from the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible, that God is the God of the living, not the dead. So not only does he answer their question, but he shows them how far off their religious thinking was. And so the third challenge was dealt with as well. 
The fourth challenge is a little bit trickier because as you read through this section, you'll find that this man asks a question which uh, the context might suggest is a genuine question. It doesn't seem like there's a malicious intent to it. And whether he meant to trap Jesus or not is kind of an open question, but it's really beside the point because of the question that is asked. Teacher, what do you say about which is the greatest of all commandments? Which points out to us the reality that amongst these different religious groups in the Jewish faith, there was some argument or disagreement over which commandment of all ten was really the most important one of the bunch. Well, you have to understand that in those days, and for much of the Jewish history of the faith, they didn't follow the principle of letting Scripture interpret Scripture, meaning the Bible pretty much reads itself for us, and that each section of Scripture helps to define the other parts of Scripture. Instead, their form of interpretation was done through the oral teachings of the ancient and respected rabbis. And the reality existed that amongst the famous rabbis, there was a disagreement as to what commandment needed to be followed the most. And quite literally, from most of the other gospel record that we have, the prominent thinking was the Sabbath law was the most important law. Jesus answers, not only in a loving way, but a perfect way. He summarizes the two tables of law. Love God. And if you love God, then you will also love your neighbor, one and two. And it's not any specific commandments. It's the sum total of all of the commandments. And you can read the rest of the conversation. This man recognizes that this was the right and perfect answer because it doesn't just honor ancient rabbis. Ultimately, it honors God. Now, those are the four different challenges. And the one that requires now our greatest attention is challenge number two, and you saw the lesson I played the video for you about the question of the tribute or tax money. Before we actually dig into it, you need to understand there's some dynamics going on here. With the first challenge, basically, Jesus had put the Pharisees and the religious leaders in a position that we might say is a no-win situation. If they had answered that John the Baptist's power came from God, they would have to acknowledge that Jesus was of the same and similar uh, authority. And if they had said, no, he was just a man doing whatever he wanted, that would have angered the people because the people recognized that John the Baptist truly was a prophet sent from God. And so what they do is, is they want to turn the tables on Jesus and say, okay, let's ask him a question that seems to put him into a no-win situation. And that happens with uh, regard to the tax money because there was a division within the Jewish people over whether or not it was both legal and morally right to pay taxes to the oppressive Roman government. They were genuinely enslaved by this greater power, and to send their money back to Rome, amongst many Jews, left a pretty bitter taste in their mouth. So what we have here, and it really exposes uh, the whole situation, is we have two groups which under any other circumstances never would have joined forces. The Pharisees and the Herodians literally hated each other. And part of the reason is, is because the Pharisees were anti-Rome. They were pro-Israel all across the board, and they were mainly a religious group. Whereas the Herodians were pro-Rome, and they very much were steadfast supporters of King Herod, whom the Roman government had placed over the nation of Israel. So these two groups, and the Herodians being more of a political group, Pharisees more of a religious group, constantly were bumping heads. And yet they're willing to set their differences aside because they shared one thing. They all hated Jesus. And their joining together gives a bit of legitimacy to their question. It almost seems like this is a question that deserves to be answered 
until you read the next line that Mark tells us that their intent was pretty clear. This word that he uses, it's a very accurate description. It describes setting a net, and literally for catching fish, snagging them. And so that was the purpose behind their question. Here's what they thought. If Jesus said, yeah, pay your taxes, that would have angered at least half the people because they were anti-Roman. And if Jesus says, no, don't pay your taxes, that would have angered another group of people because they were pro-Roman. And they thought that was not only their obligation, but something that was good for them to do, especially if they liked King Herod. It seems like they had backed him into the same corner Jesus put them in, that either answer was going to get Jesus in all kinds of trouble with the people and do the ultimate purpose of what they wanted on that day to drive that wedge between Jesus and his followers. Now, there's one other thing that we should be aware of, and it's interesting how it really is an irony. Because they came to him, and they started to compliment him. They say, you're not swayed by other men, and you really do want to speak God's truth. Now, they didn't actually mean these compliments. These were false things they were saying. Hopefully, Jesus would let his guard down and, and maybe fall into this trick of a question. But what they didn't realize is everything they just said about Jesus in a uh, uh, less than honest way were actually true. It backfires on them because the one man that they're now opposing and asking this question of does not have a sinful ego like the rest of us. Jesus doesn't care about being popular. And Jesus, for his whole ministry, tells us day after day that he is here to speak the truth of God's love so that ultimately we can be rescued from our sins. And in the meantime, that as we follow God's design for our lives, we are blessed here and can truly flourish and enjoy the life in which God has given to us. That's our Savior's goal. That's the whole reason for Messiah. And so it's an amazing irony that they would say these things to him, not meaning it, but actually be testifying to the truth of who Jesus is. Well, now there's something that we probably don't always notice, especially because in our language it's the very same word. But Jesus, in response to them, talks about, I know what you're up to. And we might think, well, he just uses his divine powers and reads their minds and their hearts. But actually, this word for knowing tells us that Jesus had experienced this kind of behavior from these enemies before. He was well aware of their tactics. He understood their motives. And yet he uses a different word for trap, and it has much the same concept as the one that Mark previously used, getting caught like in a net or something. But this one adds to it a layer or a component that there's reasoning behind it. There's enticement. There's temptation. And with using this word, Jesus exposes what's really going on here. Well, these human enemies truly did hate him. It was the devil himself that was behind all this. The devil hates the fact that Jesus offers us not only the perfect answers for life, but in doing so offers us an abundant resource of God's love. And so the devil's going to do whatever he can to drive a wedge between Jesus and us. And Jesus says, you know what? I know how to deal with this kind of trap that you've laid for me. This isn't the first time that Jesus has gone head to head with the devil. And something that Mark says is this draws to a conclusion, shows us that Jesus is not only insightful, but he's well aware of exactly the battle which he is fighting. Okay, so what is Jesus' answer? Bring me a denarius. Or in our video, it was called a penny. That's kind of a, one of the words that can be used to translate it. Denarius was actually the coin that represented a day's wage. It was a silver coin, not a copper coin. And that tells us something immediately. That only the emperor himself 
could legally issue the decree for this coin to be minted. Only the copper coins could be issued by the Senate or other governmental bodies. This coin alone would represent the fact that the emperor was the one who owned this coin. And he asked about that. Whose portrait is on it? And it's an obvious question. And he's not trying to set a trap for them. He's just simply pointing out the truth. This coin belongs to the Caesar, the emperor of the Roman government. So obviously if it's his, it's owed to him. But what we often miss is the fact that Jesus asked a second question. He doesn't just say whose picture, he also says whose inscription. And a lot of times we just simply think that Jesus is being redundant, but he's not. He's asking these two questions very specifically because of the answer. Want it? It belongs to Caesar. Render to Caesar. It's got his face on it. He issued it. But the inscription is something different. It is Pontiff Maxim. And it's a shortened version of the phrase Pontifex Maximus. Right now you're going, great Latin, Pastor K, so what? Who cares? It's what those words actually mean that Jesus asks this question, whose inscription? It's short for the fact that the emperor himself thinks that he alone can stand between the divine and human. It's the emperor himself who claims to be the high priest of all religions to properly represent mankind to, in their case, what they thought were 12 separate Roman gods. He was claiming the very authority that God himself had only given to the promised Messiah, that of standing between the divine and the human. And so when Jesus asks, whose inscription is this? He's showing them not only the hypocrisy of their question, but the ignorance of their understanding of exactly promise of Messiah. Because they're asking that question of the very man that they know has publicly claimed to be the one who stands between the divine and the human. And so his answer, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and unto God that which is God's. And that is represented by the fact that it is a principle that is taught throughout Scripture where we simply make reference to his good stewardship. Within our lifetime here, God gives us certain specific and multiple blessings that he expects us to use to not only serve him, but to also serve our fellow man. And of those obligations or ways in which God expects us to make use of our blessings, one of them, Scripture clearly teaches, God says, support the civil government which I allow to come to power. You have an obligation, whether you agree with your government or not, whether they're moral or not, you have an obligation to pay your taxes. But of the two, that is actually the smaller, the least doctrinal part that Jesus concerns himself with, he says, the greater portion of your taxation or of your obligations is to render unto God. Not only did they fail to trap Jesus, but he gave them the perfect answer. And as a result, Mark says, they were amazed at him. I hope you've recognized that through every single one of these Epiphany lessons, this has been the theme that has been repeated again and again and again. When Jesus does something or Jesus says something and people actually listen or watch what he's doing, there is only one proper reaction to that, and that's human amazement. Also, throughout the study, we've recognized that Mark has used four different terms to describe the human amazement in reaction to Jesus Christ, and this is the one that seems to be least used, the thalmazo. The only other occasion in which we had this as a reaction was when Jesus went to the Decapolis and exercised the demons out of those two men. 
I wouldn't stake my life on it or I wouldn't stake my ministry on it, but it appears that Mark reserves this thalmazo term of amazement when Jesus does battle with the devil and walks away as the victor. And so once again, much like in the Decapolis, Jesus sends the devil scurrying away. What's been intriguing throughout this entire lesson, as well as all of this epiphany season, is that Jesus appears on the surface to be like any other ordinary man, but when he opens his mouth or he lays his hands on somebody, we find these amazing, glorious things. And it would be uh, foolish of us not to recognize that he still does this very same thing for us in our lives as well. And so what I want to do is carefully now apply this lesson to our lives. And let me begin with the first half of Jesus' answer, render unto Caesar. I can't even tell you how many sermons I've listened to, and I'll be honest, how many sermons I have previously preached where the focus tends to be on the first part of the answer, render unto Caesar. Don't misunderstand me. It's an important part of the answer that Jesus gives. It does help to remind us about our Christian stewardship. And it is also an excellent proof text for a proper separation between the church and state affairs. It's also the ever-present reminder that God has us obey not just the fourth commandment, but all commandments as a reaction of love, which he has shown to us. And so out of love for our Lord, we follow his will and his commands for our life. When you sign your tax form, uh, though you might do it grudgingly as a human being, recognize that you're fulfilling the will and the service of God that ha God has placed before us for our fellow man. That said, sadly, far too often the second half of the answer, the one that really matters, the most important part of the answer, is the one that we seem to spend the least amount of time with, render unto God. Now, before you freak out and think that this is the point of the sermon where Pastor Krause turns this into a money message, and I start preaching to you about the church budget or your weekly offerings, just stop and take a deep breath. That's not where I'm going with this. But where I am going to go with this is the fact that whether or not we concern ourselves with what's in our wallets or in our purses is really beside the point. The real question is what's in our hearts. Money is only one of many ways in which we can show where we're at in our relationship with God. And when I say money, I'm referencing the offerings that we might give to support the gospel ministry. It's just one of the four obligations which God gives to us, besides the payment of taxes, besides charitable contributions, besides providing for our family, those four areas of stewardship. But no one area is more important than any of the others. And the render under Caesar does remind us what we are obliged to do as God's children and as God's stewards of what he's given to us. The reality is it's the render unto God part of the answer that causes us the most challenges. Let me simply ask you this way. Are we still amazed with that part of the answer, render unto God? That the divine who has no need for any one of us, he doesn't need tax money. He doesn't need offering money. That God himself should choose to show us such wisdom and love, not only in the answer of Jesus, but every day that that answer echoes into our daily lives. God himself, through his Son, has directed and guided us how best to live in this very broken world. And if we follow God's design for our lives, much like King David attests in Psalm 37, we are blessed. 
It's not our place to avenge ourselves of our enemies. David cries out to God because within God's scope and will, he will take care of all of those troubles and challenges. And even Christ himself does not damn his enemies to hell, though they certainly deserved it. He speaks God's truth to them in love, wanting them also to be rescued and saved. Does that kind of love still amaze us? Or have we taken it so for granted that holy God would choose to love us sinful human beings that it's almost passe or just something that happens and we're good with that. Let's look at render unto God in a much different way. Do we still long for and hunger to study God's word and the truth of what God has to say? Not only for our eternal lives, which is the ultimate importance of all of our questions, but even for our earthly lives. Do we dig into Scripture when we have a life problem and look at what does God say is the solution for the challenge that I am now facing? Or do we prefer to follow our own thought process or come up with our own answers for, this is certainly the right way to go. We've never consulted with God. Do we still hunger and thirst for the body and blood of our Savior, which is the physical proof that Jesus not only spoke the truth of what God had to say, but gave his life to show us God's love. The very evidence that we need to fight against the devil when he attacks our own faith. Are you hungry for that? Are you thirsty for that? Do we still long to come together now and as time permits more safely to stand shoulder to shoulder with our brothers and sisters in Christ, ready to encourage one another as we face life's challenges and ultimately recognize that the devil wants nothing other than to drive a wedge between us and Jesus? Does that kind of love still amaze us? Do you know what it took for God the Father, the farmer, after watching prophet after prophet being abused and killed, to choose to send his own dear son, knowing full well how he would be treated and the rejection that he would receive? And do we respect and, dare I say, fear that when the Father decides this people will no longer listen, and this people will no longer honor and worship me, that he will pick up that love and take it to people who will. Or as the parable teaches us, eventually that love shown to God's own people, the Jews, was taken to the Gentile nations. Does it still amaze us that God would choose to love us, even though Jesus full well knew that three days later, later, these religious leaders, the people responsible for and in charge of teaching God's truth, would engineer his very crucifixion. Does that kind of love still just blow us away that God would do for us the very same thing that Jesus would do for them? And so when we hear this answer that Jesus gives, render to Caesar what's his, render to God what's his, the important part of the answer, the most important part of the answer is render unto God. May the good Lord help us and invest that kind of love and wisdom in each of our faith so that we don't just give God the first place of our hearts, but that we give God our entire heart and that we can return that kind of love because the Savior came and first showed to us such Amazing love. My faithful father, 